You know, if you ever want to fly an airplane, if you want to go into the military and fly an airplane, it is not like Top Gun. Where a bunch of cool people, where they're all handsome and like fit, play volleyball with dog tags, and uh, they go, you know, out on the flight line and they grab their jet and it's got their name on it and they go do whatever they want with it, make gutsy moves. It's that's not it. There are so many rules. I mean, it, it's actually the opposite of it. There's rules. It's a bunch of people who are good at doing math in their head. And they like rules. That's what it is. There's so many rules. Everywhere you turn, there are rules, particularly in the Air Force. The Air Force is very rule-oriented. I'll give you an example. If I just want to fly from, pick a, a very simple flight, fly from one base to another base, just that airfield to that airfield. Well, there are rules to determine if I can even go to that airfield. Is, am I allowed to go to that airfield? Is the runway long enough? Is it wide enough? What kind of lighting is on the runway? What kind of markings lead up to the runway? Is there an arresting cable at the runway? Or what kind of, what kind of arresting gear exists at the runway? What kind of fuel does the airport have that I'm going to? I don't want to land there and find out they don't have my fuel. Do they have liquid oxygen or not? Am I even allowed to land there? Do they have ramp space? Is there a construction? Is the approach that I need to fly to get into that airbase, is my airplane qualified to fly that kind of approach? Is there an air show? There's rules for all of those things. Rules upon rules upon rules. And, and then if you consider weather, weather adds a whole volume of rules on top of it. What's the weather at the, the base I'm departing? That matters, because what if you lose an engine on takeoff? You have to be able to come back and land. So you need good weather there, and then you each have your pilot weather category. That means, depending on your experience, you're allowed to deal with certain kinds of weather. So then there's rules behind that, and then there's rules about your currency. When was the last time you flew in the weather? There's rules behind that, and then there's rules about the base you're going to. What's the weather at that base? If the weather's eh, now there's a bunch of rules. If the weather's great, then you have a few rules, but if it's eh, a bunch of rules. Because maybe you need an alternate. Maybe you need alternate fuel. How does the alternate qualify? Well, there's rules about that. There's rules upon rules. Just to land, take off, and land. Then there's rules about my person. How much rest have I had? We have rules about how much rest you have to have. When was the last time I had a glass of alcohol? What am I using for medication? All of those are big rules. If I take one Sudafed, I can't fly. Unless I go see a flight doc and he says, go fly. But he has rules. He has to follow all these rules. It's terrible. Well, I should say, I don't want to be down on the rules. The rules are a good thing. I, I like the rules. They've kept me safe. And that's the purpose of them, right? The purpose of the rules is to kind of create a safe network where you can do sustained training. They don't, the rules themselves don't profess to be kind of this... Uh, comprehensive way of executing the mission. But given our circumstances, given our environment, the rules are established to mitigate risk. That's what they do, is they mitigate risk. If we didn't have any rules, what would we be like? We'd be like the Navy. But I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. We wouldn't be, well, we would, well, just kidding. No, but if we didn't have any rules, 
then we would be prone to accident because you wouldn't know, when am I pushing it too far? When is, when is the weather too low? When is the visibility too small? When, what are these things? There's this natural inclination, especially in this kind of people that has a very can-do attitude, so they need rules saying, slow down. Don't do it. They don't need rules telling them to do it. They need rules telling them not to do it because they have all their friends telling them they're wusses if they don't do it. So it's the rules. I actually say the one maxim that I walk out of my flying careers is all decisions, all airborne decisions are a balance between safety and ridicule. That's how every decision is made flying. Still, amidst this ocean of rules, there is this recognition, all the time there's this recognition that there are larger principles at work. Principles from which the rules descend. So we understand the rules, but we also understand that there are, the origin of the rules are these principles. And that the principles trump the rules. The rules are the great-grandchildren of the principles. But, but the principles trump the rules. A good example of this is in one of our major operational documents, the one that kind of tells us how we're supposed to be. This is paragraph 1.1. So this is how it starts. And I'm actually reading 1.1.3. This Air Force instruction provides necessarily broad guidance and cannot address every conceivable circumstance. Pilot in commands are expected, or pilots in command, are expected to use their best judgment to ensure the safe conduct of the flight. What is that saying? That's saying it's the confession that, look, we can't think of everything that's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. And we can't write enough rules to account for everything that's going to happen. And we can't even ensure that the rules we've written won't at some point in time be in conflict with one another, so do the right thing. That's what it's saying. Is the person who's ultimately making the decision, is the person in the cockpit, that person needs to make the right decision, not based upon the rules, based upon what's right. And what's right is these principles above. This is most visible and is all the more true in combat. So in peacetime, we kind of lavish rules upon ourselves because you really want to mitigate risk during peacetime. But during wartime, your risk mitigation goes way down or way up, depending on how you think about it, and you're welcoming in risk because you're trying to do something that's much harder. And so when you hit wartime, they take entire volumes of the rule books and they throw them out the window. You'll, get, you'll sign one time that says, I understand that we're rescinding this entire corpus of rules. Your weatherman's change, your, what you're allowed to do changes, how low you're allowed to go changes, what you can shoot at changes, what you can't shoot at. All of those things begin to change, where you can fly, where you can't fly. The rules kind of loosen up a little bit because safety's not the goal. But still, there's a way that even then they cannot rescind enough rules to count, account for everything that happens in combat. There are times in combat that you just have to do things that are against the rules, because the principle to which you're being obedient is more important. So let me, hear me clearly. I'm not saying they're rule breakers. I'm saying you go above the rule. You recognize that the rule is subordinate to a higher principle, and the higher principle is what demands your loyalty. I remember there was, our airplane has a GPS system in it, um, but it's, it's not as good as what an airliner would have in some ways. And so uh, we can't use it to do approaches. We're not, it's not legal for us to do approaches. And you can't, historically, you can't uh, descend 
This is the rule. You can't descend to low altitude um, at night through the weather, um, you know, based upon just an electronic data point. Like, you know, you know you're a thousand feet above the ground, but if you're in the weather, they just won't just let you descend. My first time I was in Afghanistan, we descended into a valley in the mountains, straight down in the middle of the night at three in the morning, straight down in the middle of the night, all the way down until there was about 1,500 feet under the weather where we broke out. And I just remember that. And my wingman was a terrible wingman, and he nearly killed himself doing it, so I'll never forget it. Um, but those were totally against the rules. But the, somebody on the radio was saying, you've got to get there. You've got to go there. And so you, you have to recognize what principles are first and what principles are second, because lives are at stake. Well, this is true in life. This is true in the church. This is true in our Christian walk, and it's, it's what we're observing this morning, this, this challenge of the rules, the tension between rules and principles is what we're observing this morning in Mark. Read with me uh, just two verses, 23 and 24 of chapter 2. So chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Did you hear what the Pharisees are saying? The Pharisees are saying they're breaking a rule. The Pharisees are looking. Now there's been a kind of a growing tide of discontent and opposition against Christ. If you look at the back stories, you can see notable increase in opposition towards what Jesus is doing and saying. This is the first time it's been open accusation. So far it's been like inquisition. Why are you going to eat dinner with Levi? Who can forgive sins but God? Why aren't you fasting? This is, you're a rule breaker. I mean, it's couched in a question, but it's an accusation. But apparently they see that the disciples have done something on the Sabbath that is against the rules. Now, if it was fasting, so last week when we talked about fasting, if it was fasting, it, it's one, it, fasting is a small thing compared to the Sabbath. There's nowhere in Scripture, in Leviticus, you can't read that if someone fails to fast, you put them to death. Uh, the Old Testament says multiple times, if someone violates the Sabbath, that is a penalty of which the punishment can be death. So the, the Sabbath here, this is a different level of question. They're, they're looking and they're not simply observing why doesn't he have the same kind of devotion that we do in fasting. They're actually saying, why is he not observing our central fixture of our Jewish life? That's what it is. It's the Sabbath, you might think, is, is the central fixture of the Jewish life. The Jewish life kind of congregated around the Sabbath. And the Sabbath idea showed up in multiple places. It wasn't just a day of the week. There was a Sabbath concept that will show up. But they're, they're wondering, why is he not obeying that? Because that's a big rule. That's not like fasting. That's one of Jesus' primary commands. It's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? That's Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath. It's the most lengthy commandment, if you read through them. And this commandment, it has a positive side and a negative side. So, so listen to this. There's a positive side. Here's the positive side of the commandment of, of the Sabbath. Honor it. Rest. Keep it holy. It's for your enjoyment. 
and your refreshment. It's for solemn assembly. We celebrate God through it. Those are the positive things. If you want to know what do you do on the Sabbath, that's what you do on the Sabbath. That's the positive side. Here's the negative side, which is almost always engulfs the positive, isn't it? We always know the negative side of the rules, what we should not do. Here's what we should not do. Do not work on the Sabbath. Rest. Do not labor on the Sabbath. You should be resting from your labor. Do not work on the Sabbath. Likewise, and I I need to say this, this will push harder, do not live in such a way that your resting causes others to work. So it didn't simply say, Hebrews, you rest on the Sabbath and your slaves make dinner. It says just the opposite. It says, when you rest, they rest. That's a lot less comfortable. So there's the positive and the negative side of the two rules. Now, the Pharisees, as, as always is the case with us, where we let the negative side kind of engulf the law and we lose sight of the principle, the principles of the Sabbath, they developed 39 things, 39 ordinances that designated someone was a Sabbath violator. There were 39 ways you could find a Sabbath violator. Number three was, thou shalt not harvest. What were the disciples doing? They were eating grain. They were walking through the field, picking grain and kind of rubbing it in their hands, get the chaff off it, popping it like sunflower seeds. That little bulbous cheek, you know, visiting. The Pharisees see that and they go, Violation number three, thou art harvesting. That is so unlawful on the Sabbath, you are so in trouble. That's what the Pharisees are saying. Because they've been so caught up in the rules. And this is how Jesus responds. He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus essentially says three big things here. He says three big things here. The first thing he says to the Pharisees or implies is, you don't know what the Bible says. He says, you don't know God's word. He says, didn't you, didn't, didn't you read the Bible? That's kind of how he says it. Look, Abby, the days of David, and he's referring to 1 Samuel. He's referring, it's a very obscure reference, by the way. He's referring to an occasion in 1 Samuel where David is fleeing from Saul. David is running for his life. He's hungry. He, we don't even know if David has other companions with him from the actual text necessarily. He goes into the house of God. He says to the priest, he says, I need the bread. We're hungry. I need the bread. The bread which is intended only for the priests. It's sacrosanct. It's blessed. It's holy. And the priest says here. The priest gives him the bread and he goes on his merry way. Now Jesus is not saying, he's not bringing this up as a way of like making an excuse. Like a childish excuse. Like, well, Tommy did it. He's not saying that. He's not saying, well, David, David broke the rules and you didn't yell at him. What he's saying is, David violated the rules and nobody saw that as unrighteous. 
So he's not using David as the excuse. He's citing David as someone who broke the rules. He clearly broke the rules. David clearly broke the rules. Is he a priest? No. David, Saul lost his kingdom for behaving as a priest. David eats the bread of the priest, and God says nothing. The Hebrews say nothing. The priests say nothing. Nothing. No one calls it. Why? And it's because Jesus is saying this, because the principles that were, are, that were at work are higher than the rules. Jesus is implying from the story of David that there were higher principles at work. That, For example, David's life. David was starving. The, the laws are for God's people. Why would the laws be enforced at, with the effect of de- denying life to God's people? And so Jesus is using this reference to say, look, David could eat the bread because the principle of God wanting to sustain his life is more significant than the little rule about the holy bread on the table. In fact, the reason David's running is because God anointed his head with oil and said, you're the next king. That never happened. David would never have had to run. So David's fleeing for his life because of the blessings of the Lord. David's fleeing from Saul because of of Saul's anger. And God is sustaining him through the bread. And what Jesus is doing is he's citing this to say, look, higher principles are at work here than the simple little rule of rule number three of paragraph five that I cannot harvest on the Sabbath that you're citing against my disciples. That's the first thing, is that they don't know the word of God. This is the second thing he says. You don't even know the will of God. First of all, you don't know what God says. Next, you don't even know what God's will is. God's will for our lives is not the infatuations with his teachings in the sense of creating rule after rule after rule after rule after rule. That's not God's will for his life. The law was established to protect, bless, and guide us, and the Sabbath was given to us as a gift. Do you realize this? The Sabbath is a gift. It's God's gift to us. The alternative to the Sabbath is we work seven days a week and we don't ever know where our sustainment comes from. God is saying, for six days you will labor and on one day you will be in weekly remembrance of the fact that I provide for you, that I give you, and that I want you to rest, be together, and to recognize me. You go somewhere else, you go to another land, you go to places, the Philistia, where people worship Baal, Are they resting on the Sabbath? They have no Sabbath. The Hebrew people were different from the other people. They had no Sabbath and they would labor and toil. Half the time they were laboring and toiling, they were trying to pay their God. And then they're trying to pay man. And God is just the opposite. He's saying, stop your labor and your toil. It all comes from me. Six days you'll work. On one of those days you'll remind yourself, just like the Lord's Supper, just like baptism, things that we're prone to forget, God makes us remember. Do this again. Every week I want you to rest because I want you to realize that your rest only comes from me. It was a gift. And yet the Pharisees weighed it down with all these rules. They weighed it down so much that they could never even be at rest. They were always restless trying to be in obedience to these rules. Just look at what they're doing on the Sabbath, by the way. Just observe. Imagine in your mind's eye the scene. Jesus walking with the twelve, a day like yesterday. Remember how nice yesterday was? I bet you it was like that. They're walking through the fields. They're picking the grain. They're visiting. 
They're joking. They're asking questions. They're on their way. Maybe they're on their way from synagogue or they're on their way to synagogue, doing something like that. That is the essence of rest. If I said to you, after church today, go with your family to a a field of grain and walk. How does that feel? It's like, oh. And then, like, you think about it for a second. You go, I can't. I got this to do. I got to do that. I got to. We never even have time to go walk through a grain field. Right? And here's Jesus walking with the 12 through a grain field. They're fulfilling. That is a cathartic experience. They're fulfilling the intent of, of the Sabbath to be walking together and sharing their lives together. Now, what about the Pharisees, those who are resting? What are they doing? They're like sitting in a squad car, you know, with the CB, and they're calling in a SWAT team, and the chopper's landing, and they're coming out with a bullhorn, stop where you are, rule number three, broken, arrested. Right, they're so wrapped up about resting, they're never resting. They're looking to arrest people for not resting. It's this, it's this disaster. I think if Jesus were speaking English, he'd say, for crying out loud, is this for real? Walking handful of grain, and here are these people who haven't rested once in their life. But that's what rules can do to us, can't they? We can be so caught up in the rules that we lose the ability to rest. So that's the second thing. You don't know what God said, and he says, and you don't know God's will. If you knew God's will, you would not manipulate the Sabbath. You would remember that it's a gift. The third thing Jesus says is, you know, you don't even know God. You don't know what God said. You don't know what God's will is. And if God was standing, facing you face to face, you probably would not recognize him. That's what he's saying here. And there's something on the back side of this, that if you could recognize it was Jesus, you would also recognize this, that if you said to Jesus, why are your disciples walking around doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, that he could turn to you and say, because I said so. I am the giver of the law. I'm the giver of life. I made this grain grow. I am the giver of all good things. I am the source of rest and peace. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. These people, these disciples, are walking with the source of all rest and peace in the whole cosmos, and the Pharisees have the gall to say, oh, they're violating the rest of God. They're doing the very thing that we're called to do which is to seek the rest of God, to seek to be with God, to seek to walk with God. In a physical way they're doing it, in a symbolic way they're doing it, in a spiritual way they're doing it. If only we could be that close to Jesus. And there's a point, there's a point when you're walking that close to Jesus that the, the, rules, the rules always subordinate themselves to because I said so. There's just times when the Lord allows the principles of his holiness and of his sovereignty and of his kindness to trump the rules. But the Pharisees have lost the observance of all of this. Their hearts are hard and they've been infatuated with the rules and they've lost sight of what it means, what these higher principles mean. Now, this is about as far as I can preach on this, not because I'm running out of time, but because nobody here is really that legalistic. We could beat up on the Pharisees all day. I mean, it's like a straw man. Everybody here can kind of aim in because this is not us. If you think of it, if the principles are way up here and, and if you kind of fell off the hill of principles and you rolled down this side, you'd land in rules. 
Okay, that's one way people deal with principles, is they go, ah, I can't balance up on top of the hill, so I'll come down here, I'll build a bunch of rules that will kind of make my life look principled. And hopefully, I'll remember them. That's the best way. Rules help us, right? Hopefully, these rules will keep me mindful that there are principles up there. That's the one way. And that's how the Pharisees started. You know, they're just down here, entrapped in them. On the other side of the hill is something else. And this is more where our kind of people are. If you roll it on this hill, there's lawlessness. Laws over here, rules over here, no rules over here. So we're at a place, our culture's at a place where it's, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to do the Sabbath. It's Old Testament stuff. It's, it's all grace. I'm just forgiven. Who are you to judge me? I'm, I'm just quoting us. How dare they say that? You ever driven home with that? Jesus is not being lawless. He's being principled. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference between being principled and being lawless. And when the church says, we're not going to have a bunch of rules, we're not going to operate, and I'm not going to preach rules at you, because it's the wrong place to be. I'll preach principles to us. But when we say, we're not going to do this, the answer is not, well, we're just going to live a lawless life. The Sabbath still has significance. What are the principles of the Sabbath? You ought to rest in the Lord. Often if not all the time. But at the very least, weekly, you should be seeking to be in the rest of God. That doesn't mean here. I mean, you guys are following at least one good rule, the fact that you're here. Check. Right? I can't like, yell at you too bad. You're here. But you can be here and not be here, if you know what I mean. You ever have a friend where you're visiting with them and they're there, but they're not there? Their mind is somewhere else? You're trying to talk to them about what's going on, but their, their heart. You can be in the house of the Lord on the day of rest and have a heart that is a million miles away from the peace of God. But your, your mouth is singing about all these nice things, but your heart is betraying you before the Lord because you don't believe that God provides the rest that you yearn for so badly. There are principles to the Sabbath that God is still very concerned about. And, and they, they lead. They lead to questions. I won't give you rules, but I will give you questions. It extends my life expectancy. I have, and I'm, I'm among you on this. I'm asking these questions. I feel unfit, unfit as a Christian in the way that I've been considering the Sabbath. So I say... There are questions. You know, I, I eat out all the time on Sunday. I have to ask questions about that. When I came in Exodus and I read, neither shall your slave or servants labor on the Sabbath, what do I do with that? What do you do with that? What about you who, we who, us, who use the Sabbath as the day to advance our child athletically? I'm not saying I know the answer, but I'm saying if you refuse to ask the question, that's sinful. You've got to ask the question. What are you doing with God's Sabbath? You see, when we, when we head over to lawlessness, we kind of exonerate ourselves from the principles that are there. 
So I'm saying, go back when you read the Old Testament, read it knowing these rules do not bind me, but the principles do. The principles are true. They're as true today as they are back in the Old Testament. The only difference is that the rest that we seek now is not just in a day, it's in a person. It's in Jesus Christ. That We have rest in Jesus Christ, and that is our constant source of rest and peace to whom we are always looking to all the time. In things like Sunday, things our days of observance are reminders. There are ways to refresh us congregationally and as a family towards the rest that's found in Jesus Christ. It's my hunch that if we cannot rest on the Sabbath, you cannot rest in Christ either. Because the Sabbath is an inferior principle to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. I bid you a day of rest. I have no rules for you. But I do pray that we would at very least seek to be walking in the same field as Christ. And then we can just intuitively know what we're supposed to do because we're with him, we're among him, and we're following after him. Amen.